here with a first-time guest on Coast to Coast AM, so stick with us. This is Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Shamans, those indigenous people who have been, been able to do some miraculous things. In a moment, Matthew Palomari joins us as we will talk about shamans on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Matthew Palomari with us, a noted author, editor, shamanic explorer. His latest book titled The Peak of Floor is the sequel to Spirit Matters, which is a San Diego Book Award and National Best Book Award winner that chronicles his adventures throughout the mountains, deserts, jungles of North, Central, and South America, pursuing his studies of shamanism and visionary experience working with plant medicines, among them ayahuasca peyote, San Pedro cactus, and many, many more. He's got a number of books in print in multiple genres and has been a leading popular fantastic fiction workshop at the Southern California and Santa Barbara Writers Conferences for more than 30 years and frequently lectures on shamanism and writing throughout the United States. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hello, George. Thank you so much for having me on, and a special thanks to your wonderful producers and your crew. They are really on the ball. Oh, they are sharp people. And how come we haven't had you on before? I've tried for a while, and I've gone through my own thing, and times change, and I've had different books. One one of the things for me personally, I'm a publicist's nightmare. I, I write in multiple genres. Huh. You know, they classify me as horror, science fiction. I have, this is my second memoir. I have historical novel. I have supernatural fiction, uh, science fiction. Um, so I'm all over the map. And, you know, I like to think maybe I'll be an overnight success after 40 years because I've been at it for about that long. So well, maybe this is my big break, George. Thank you. Last time I counted, you had about 16 books. Is that right? Yes, sir. Pico Floor is my 16th book. And I'm, I'm also... I've been teaching for over 30 years, as you mentioned, so um, I, I sort of have That's a proud right. daddy moment because a lot of my students now are getting published. They're winning awards. Uh, they're doing really well, and, I'm, you know, I'm very much into the written words. Isn't that there are 16 books. That's proud for a teacher to be able to see their students excel that way, isn't it? It's the best. You know, I was really blessed to be mentored by Ray Bradbury and Charles Schultz and another uh, a number of best-selling writers at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, and now I feel like I'm carrying the torch and passing on all the wonderful, uh, you know, gifts that they have given me in the teaching and the learning and the support and the brotherhood. In my office, on my bulletin board, I have uh, posted a letter that I got from Ray Bradbury, and I had written a story about his I Sing the Body of Electric script, which he wrote for The Twilight Zone. And he just loved what we wrote about it. And he sent me this personal letter that said, this has just pleased me beyond belief. Thank you so much. Signed it, Ray Bradbury. And it's something I've got for the rest of my life, Matthew. It's just what, it's just a great collector's item. That's awesome because I've got, I've got a postcard. He was going to, he, he gave me a blurb for my first short story collection and he never used to give out blurbs. And he was going to blurb me for my historical novel that I mentioned, and he had a stroke. Oh. And he wrote me a postcard apologizing for having a stroke. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah, and he – so I've been with the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, as you mentioned, for over 30 years. And Ray kicked off that conference for 37 years. What a great guy he, was, he uh, is. Oh, yeah. He, and I got to, to be close to him because my writing is the weirdest stuff that anybody heard at the conference. And um, after uh, he would speak – he would go back into the restaurant, and there'd be a small group of, like, four or five of us, and I was invited to be part of it for many years. And he, um, he'd sit there and tell stories of working with uh, John Houston writing Moby Dick, and he would go into the accents and everything, you know. He was, he was, <laughs> That's he was cool. great. He was, he was such an inspiration. He was like, you know, you, know, you have this three-year-old amazement when you're three years old and everything's amazing. Well, Ray was always, like, that wonderful three years old amazement and he just loved uh, the written word and writing and he was really really an inspiration i feel so blessed and honored to to you know have been known and 
be friends with him and, and mentored by him. Oh, that's great. Uh, uh, as well as all the others. That, that's exciting. Now, how did you become interested in shamanism? So there are a number of paths, um, but um, I know you you have had an interest in this, and I know you've written some books yourself. So yeah. I was writing some horror and um, I was studying the lycanthropy mythos, which is werewolf mythology. That's right. Which got, you know, got me into shape-shifting. And then I realized uh, how much shape-shifting mythologies were tied in with shamanism. And uh, I also have had a fascination, a lifeline, lifetime fascination with altered states. And I realized that the altered states and visionary experience and plants of the Amazon and all those things tied in directly. There were more sort of shape-shifting mythologies uh, there than most other places, although they're they're worldwide and and generally global and universal. Uh, But I was really drawn to that. And then um, I was taking an honors course in anthropology. Are you still there? Well, we may have lost him. Check again. Matthew, are you there? Nope, he's not. We're going to have to get uh, Tommy to call him back and and, and get him. And uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do. He just clipped right off. We're talking about shamanism, of course, and the shamans have done all kinds of incredible things where they just do what they do primarily for indigenous tribes and what they do all the time. And where they they do it has been amazing. Now, a lot of the shamans have recommended taking, and I've never taken it and never will, ayahuasca. And uh, that is just an unbelievable situation. But we'll uh, do our best to get him back. He was on the phone, and he clipped off, and he is gone. And uh, so Tommy's trying to get him back on. Look, worse comes to worse. We'll go to some open lines if we have to here. And we'll get going on that. But uh, let's uh, clip him back on, Tom, and let's get him rolling again and find out where the heck he went. Matthew Palomari with us. Uh, and um, he, the book he's talking about is called Pika Floor. I'll spell it. P-I-C-A-F-L-O-R, which is a memoir sequel to Spirit Matters. And... Uh, that was one of his other earlier books, and he's written like 16, but... Uh, How's it look? Are we going to get it back or not? Try a cell phone. All right, see what you can do and, and get them back. If not, uh, folks, we may go to open lines here at Coast to Coast, and uh, we'll get going here right away. Any luck there, Tommy? Nope. He's simply disappeared. Poof, he is gone. So let me take some calls. And, uh, let's do it. Let's go to you. Welcome to the program. You're on open lines. Hello, George. How are you? It's Annie in Alabama. Thank you so much for taking my call. You know, these people that uh, go to South America, go down there on ayahuasca tourism, don't they? They do. As a matter of fact, Annie, we've got Matthew back, so hold on for a little bit because uh, you can be one of the first callers when we take calls with them. Matthew, I think we got you back. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened with this. Dropped out there. Popped off. We've got to be careful with those things. The phones work. When they, when they do work, they're wonderful, huh? Got to love technology, right? Well, we're talking about shamans, and, of course, did every indigenous tribe have a shaman connected to it? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, shamans were the first, like, psychologists and, and leaders of the groups, particularly in uh, South America, uh, they, uh, oftentimes they were considered to be also at the fringe of their societies, but but they were the ones that were the bridges between the spirit world and the real world. And they, they were the first psychologists, the first doctors, the first healers, um, the first performing artists, um, the, the uh, first teachers. Uh, you know, all of those things go go have their roots back to shamanism. All those things were considered sacred. Now, what is a shaman? What to describe that for us? Is he like a witch doctor? What what are they? Yeah, some people refer to that. It's very much misunderstood. But the actual, the roots of the word shaman is from Siberia. Um, in fact, I think you were just talking about the Tungus region there with the yeah. uh, the, the, the crater. So the, the root of the word is sa, S-A, and M-A-N, saman. And it is, uh, definition is one who knows. So 
they've applied it to a lot of the South American shamans in like in, in South America, but they never call themselves shamans. Um, they, they didn't even know what the word was. They consider themselves to be healers and uh, plant men. I mean, were they like and, the um, were they like the modern day pharmacists were? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things I've been lucky to do is to go into the jungle and work with these plants and plant medicines, because in the in the jungle, uh, even today in in many places, the shamans are the only thing that represents a doctor, and they're very much connected with the natural world. And so they're very much in tune with the plants and the knowledge and the things that they have have been passed on from generation to generation, literally back to prehistoric times. So, you know, like in truth, a lot of the witches that were persecuted throughout, you know, the centuries in the past, they were actually considered uh, shamans. They were they were plant healers or medicinal healers. How did they know this? Was it passed down from shaman to shaman in the family or what? Yeah, primarily, uh, or they were chosen. Um, in some cultures, even somebody could get sick with a fever and, and almost die and come back. They could be considered a shaman. Someone who uh, is struck by lightning and survives is considered a shaman. They seem to be, a bit, to be very powerful. Uh, they can be considered that way from their dreams, from their connection with, uh, for lack of, of better words, other realms and other realities, uh, whether it's dreaming or visions or some combination of all of those things. But... They're the ones that go to spirit world and find out what spirit has to say and brings it back to the people, which incidentally follows. Uh, it's the roots of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which I'm sure you have some familiarity yeah. with. Interesting. I've always believed, Matthew, that this planet has remedies for all the diseases that are on the planet. Now, that's not to say it's got remedies for things that are man-made or created. But I think that the diseases that are naturally occurring on this planet, there's a plant out there to cure it. What do you think? I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things I learned from some of the really old-time uh, plant men down there in the jungle, I, and I try to avoid the word shaman. I don't like it uh, for all the pop culture woo-woo stuff about it. But part of their belief system and part of the plants that they work with have to do with the, the way that the plant looks will give you an indicator of what part of the body it can help. Really? One of the more, yeah, one of the more common examples you hear of is that the fact that a walnut, inside of a walnut, looks like a brain. That's true. It so, does look like a brain. Yeah, so they, they say in this day and age that, okay, a walnut's good brain food. And there is some truth to that. So a lot of the plants that I've been shown and worked with in the jungle have a resemblance to different body parts, and they reflect things um, they can affect those body parts or those conditions. You know, one of the things I've had some wonderful experience and success with is uh, cat's claw. They call it uña de gato. Um, it's an herb, isn't that, it? Um, pardon me? That's an herb, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually a vine. And um, it's used traditionally for tumors and as an anti-inflammatory agent and for other things. And now you can go and go to any place where they have supplements and you can get powdered uña de gato vine and take it as an anti-inflammatory. And, it, and, it, and I can attest to the fact that it can treat and help some conditions, particularly inflammatory ones, which is one of the uses. And there's tons, there's a whole pharmacopoeia out there of plants that do all these things that they've been doing literally since prehistoric times. But, you know, when Western colonization came in and the Spaniards and the Portuguese and everybody else came in and, and the whole... Christianity thing, a lot of that stuff just got wiped out, which is an, another reason why I've been so fascinated with trying to catch this knowledge. A, a lot of this knowledge has been passed down through oral traditions. Lenny, well, here's the big question. How and why does the planet have this? How, how and why? Oh, well, you know, in my, in my opinion, we were more or less given uh, the Garden of Eden. And, you know, there's all the old sayings and different spiritual traditions of, you know, you have everything you need and seek within to find the truth. Some of the amazing things about the jungle plants is how can you consider um, using these plants in this way? You know, you spend some time in the jungle and all the plants start to look the same after a while. I bet. And you think about all the, the thousands of plants that they have there. And then you think of, uh, I heard that lady was mentioning ayahuasca, which I've done a lot of work with. How do they know to combine those two plants to get those effects out of all those plants? Yeah. I you mean, know, was it trial and error, experimentation, or what was it? It, it is that. 
It's also observing animals. You can observe what animals are eating and have the effects. Or, you know, if Cruck the Cayman goes over and eats that berry and he drops dead, well, nobody else is going to eat that berry, right? He's, Cruck already he, he gave his life for that knowledge. But um, you can observe certain animals. In fact, one of the more known things are the uh, Amanita mushrooms. And uh, have you heard about them? I mean, you must have heard about the myth of Santa Claus and, and the Amanita mushrooms. That, that's, that Santa Claus was a mushroom, right? Yeah, the red and the white thing, and what, when what traditionally in Siberia, as a matter of fact, they saw that the reindeer were eating these mushrooms and getting intoxicated. Interesting. So people said, "Oh, well, the reindeer are getting intoxicated eating that. Here, I'm going to eat that." And bang, they had their experience. So observing animals, observing nature, and when you spend time in the jungle, even as a, a culture or a tribe, and your life depends on really being part of the culture. You, you, you realize you're an integral part in nature, and you learn to live in balance with nature, and you learn to observe every little thing. A, a, a particular animal makes a cry at a particular time of the day, or another animal maps another way, and you know it's going to rain, and, and you get very much involved in your part in the whole uh, web of nature, That's how everything is connected. You become part of that and very aware of that. You be, become aware of the fact that this is the season the plant uh, plant corn, and this is the season when it's going to rain, and this is when it's going to be harvested. Your life depends on that, as opposed, you know, to now in our modern day and age, we're quite disconnected from a lot of things because of our technology. That's interesting take of that. And do you think the shamans were like family passed on? You know, maybe grandmother was a shaman, or were they all gent men? What? Who? Who were the shamans? Yeah, you know, it, it's not. People identify with men, but it's men and women. I've worked with female shamans. I work with female Indian uh, shamans, shamanesses. And, you know, a shaman is just a name. Like I had mentioned, uh, the witches were really shamans and the warlocks. They were they were primarily healers uh, using plants and medicines. And there's all the uh, mythologies. And then, you know, there's the fear of organized religion that has come up against that and all the things that have happened throughout the years with that but I, I did a podcast a few years back and and this whole thing of shaman came up and people run up i'm a shaman and you know it, my advice is if somebody comes up to you and says i'm a shaman you better run the other way as fast as you can yeah exactly because they you generally know. don't admit it do they the real shamans that's correct that is absolutely correct and and even traditionally they may have lived on the outskirts of the village they're known for going off by themselves and doing vision quests in order to really connect with nature and listen to nature and hear what nature has to say and how nature can guide them. And by the way, my specialty is South American Indian shamanism, but this applies to North American Indians and throughout the world, Siberian shamans, you know, Korean, the, the whole knowledge base and the things that are considered sacred and important in healing are, are universal. Do they induce out-of-body experiences, Matthew, and things like that, the shamans? Absolutely. Um, they travel to other dimensions or realms or states of consciousness, whatever you want to call it. And they're, in fact, there's sort of an inner inside anthropology joke that it, uh, some shamans, you know, in modern culture, we go to the doctor and, and the doctor says, here, you take this medicine and you'll get healed. Well, in, in shamanism, you go to the shaman and say, I have a problem. And the shaman's the one that takes the medicine and gets, uh, you know, the healing from that and, and from the plants um, and the different effects that they have uh, on your people, whether whether in dreaming or physiologically or psychologically. Um, it it kind of goes across the board in a lot of ways. I remember watching a movie, and the shaman was looking at an eagle flying way overhead, and all of a sudden the shot was the eagle's perspective looking down at people, but it was the, really the shaman who became the eagle by some method that he used. I, I have a scene like that in my historical novel, Land Without Evil. That's fascinating. Um, We're going to take a quick yeah. break, Matthew. Stay with us, and your website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. We'll take calls next hour with Matthew as we talk about shamans, and uh, we're also going to get into some of his work with werewolves and lycanthropy because he's written a book on that, and that fascinates me too. So much more ahead on Coast to Coast AM, so don't touch your dial. We'll be right back.
And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, back with Matthew Palomari. His website is his name, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. What is it about the Amazon, Matthew, in your opinion, where it's so laden with all these remedies and cures? That's a fascinating thing, and it, it, it gets deep into the root of shamanism. Um, because if you look at the Amazon, where I go, and the Amazon in general, you're just a few degrees off of the equator. And the equator is where the sun strikes the earth the most out of any place else on the planet, which also gives it the highest density and diversity of life. It's, it's, it's the core of it. And if you look, one of the things about shamanism and, and shamanic thought is that absolutely everything is energy. So if you, if, if you look at the, the cosmologies or whatever you'd like to uh, call it, the sun is up there giving off its energy unconditionally and freely. In, in shamanic terms, that's uh, father, son, padre, uh, pachatata in the, in the jungle, and mother earth is pachamama, madre tierra. And between the two of them, that's where we exist. So the fact that the sun strikes the earth there and has the greatest diversity of life and if you look at life in terms of consciousness and diversity of consciousness, and if you look at life and consciousness and the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, that they're all manifestations of energy, and they are all different manifestations of consciousness all the way down to the microscopic level, and who knows even beyond that. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the fact that it's all there and the fact that these cultures have thrived on their imbalance with nature fascinated me to no end. So my life has really been devoted to not only studying it intellectually speaking, but to experience it directly. Are these medicinal plants all over the Amazon? I mean, if you were looking at a field, would they be scattered everywhere? Or do you have to yeah, search they're for all over the place? And, and, and there were really interesting symbiotic relationships. Like there's one particular palm tree and another plant has to grow on that palm tree in order to exist. And the amazing connections that you discover between plants and animals and butterflies that look like leaves. And, you know, um, you have uh, a jaguar that dies and then all the bugs eat the jaguars and the lizards eat the bugs and then the frogs eat the lizards and then the jaguars, eat, you know, it's a cycle that goes on and on and on. And, sure. the, and then the, everything else dies and the trees eat that. And then you also have um, uh, microclimates up through different parts of the canopy and throughout the jungle. So, you can have uh, a 20-foot space um, up a tree where there's just a particular biosphere, and only particular animals live within that space. It's, it's just really fascinating the way it's all connected in, in this, like, giant, interlocked, uh, interdependent puzzle. Have you ingested ayahuasca, and what does it do for you? I've been ingesting ayahuasca for 20 years. I've done uh, – I've been going into the Amazon for 20 years doing it. And then it's transformed my life completely and changed me. Um, I like to think more human. Really? Um, yes. Um, so, so there's a few things. I, I grew up in Boston in a neighborhood, uh, Dorchester, um, and tough neighborhood, Irish Catholic neighborhood. My mother, my mother was uh, from Fitch, Fitchburg, by the way. Okay, so you get it. You know, yeah. Park My Con, Harvard Yard, right? You, you got it. You got it. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I grew up with that, and I went, like, for 30 years without ever crying. Um, it was not, I'm not going to cry, or it just was, there was just nothing there. And No emotions? Um, I, none. Wow. Tough guy, you want to mess with me, we're going to fight, all that stuff. You know, I was a little kid in a tough neighborhood, all, all that stuff. My, my father, you know, went to prison, you know, typical story. You, you had so a rough, rough upbringing, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, and, I, you know, street fighter. So when I started working with the ayahuasca, um, one of the things about ayahuasca is, uh, among a million other things, is it finds your deepest fears and it amplifies them. And there's oh. sort of, there, there's no escape. And, and those deeper fears that are there that are buried within us, that's considered, that's our shadow. So I reconnected with my feminine side and ayahuasca is considered a feminine medicine. It's considered the mother of all the other plants in the Amazon. Is it a berry or what is it? 
No, it's a vine. It's a vine. Um, so there's um, – and stop me. I can go on forever about this. So if I go off track too much, stop no, me. I want, I want to talk about werewolves, but we got some time. Go ahead. Okay, so ayahuasca, the brew, is actually a combination of two plants. There's the ayahuasca plant itself, which is a vine, Monasteriopsis copy. And then there's another plant that they call chacruna, which is Psychotria viridis, which is a bush. Now, the Psychotria viridis contains DMT, which is a psychoactive component. Aha, uh-huh. okay. But you can eat that all day and nothing will happen because your monoaminoxidase uh, enzymes in your stomach will digest it before it can become orally active. Okay. But when you mix it with the ayahuasca, the ayahuasca brew has beta-carbolines, which are the MAO inhibitors, which allow it to become orally active. How much of so, it do you have to drink in order for it to kick in? You can drink about an ounce. That's it? That's it. And you can be out of the park for about five hours, give or take. That's like less than a shot glass, isn't it? It's, it's typically a shot glass. Uh, that's a full dose. And that's what my old friend Terrence McKenna would call a heroic dose. And now how soon does it hit you? It's funny because it, one of the things I've always liked about it is it's unpredictable. It can hit you in five minutes. It can hit you in an hour and a half. Um, it can creep up on you. It can hit you out of nowhere like you just got hit by a car. But it will hit you, won't it? Oh, yes, it will. You you bet it will. But but every once, and there, I don't know any figures, but like something like one out of a thousand people, it doesn't affect at all. Um, it has to do with neurochemistry and sure. serotonin release and, and things like that. Does your yeah, heart race you when you drink it? Your heart can raise, yes. As a matter of fact, one of my primary mentors has had to retire from it. He's in his mid to late 80s now because it's hard. He's had heart problems. And it can, if you're dealing, you know, it can take you to heavenly realms and it can take you to the darkest hells yeah, uh, in I terms of the teaching. And in terms of archetypes, uh, it's considered the dark feminine. And um, it's considered that the top um, of the plant teachers out of all of them. You know, there's mushrooms, there's San Pedro cactus, there's a number of other ones. you got to be careful, though, don't you? Absolutely. This is not for everybody. This is not for everybody. I, I really want to stress that. Um, I'm, I'm a hard case. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not your average case. And an interesting thing that happened to me, all the years I've been working with it, um, I was also at some point for a number of years working with a personal coach who helped me to get down to my shadows and my traumas and my wounds and all the stuff that was buried in there. Uh-huh. Her other clients, she said, stop working with the ayahuasca, stay away from that stuff. I think I was the only one she encouraged to keep doing it. After you ingested it, did you start crying? Um, at times, crying, laughing, uh, and it wasn't immediate. It takes you through. It, it can bring up your past. It can bring you to places. Uh, let me put it to you this way. Um, when you when you work with it, it, it hits your subconscious, and your subconscious is also connected to the collective, so to speak. Right. We can all have, you know, like like uh, I'm a little younger than you, but you know, I grew up. We grew up with the whole nuclear thing, right? So we we grew up with the fear of nuclear war because we grew up from World War II and the atom bomb and all that stuff, right? So that's part of a collective thing. So. You tap into those things, and you also tap into other people and things. One of the things that fascinated me um, is when ayahuasca was first discovered by a Westerner, which, if I'm correct, was uh, Richard Spruce, and I think it was 1865. Um, he named the active component telepathy. When I heard that, I was like, oh, man, i got to try that. And then I heard the other names for it, which were the vine of the dead, uh, the vine of the soul, Jeez. and I couldn't not experience it. And can, so I actually researched it for 10 years before I found it. Can it turn you, Matthew, into a zombie? No, it turned me into somebody who is more aware because the, the key is this. One of the things of shamanism is learning uh, from, uh, psychological navigation. So, you know, you can be in a dreaming state where you're flying a purple horse with pink polka dots, and when you're in that state of consciousness, it's it's normal to you. Oh, yeah, I'm flying my purple horse, you know, and everything's great. When do you start um, coming down after you take it? About five hours. Takes that and, long, huh? Yeah, typically, yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, it's done, I've always done it traditionally in the sense which is in a ceremony, which is overseen by a... Uh, I'll, I'll use that word, <laughs> shaman, 
who oversees things. Can you function? Can you, you know, walk around and everything? Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Uh-huh. Um, I've, been com- I've been completely incapacitated. But the other thing that they do in these ceremonies is there's typically three or four people, helpers, who don't take it all. They, they just, they're there to babysit everybody else. So you can be in an ayahuasca circle and you can totally lose your mind, but you're in a safe space if you're working with somebody who has integrity. I was going to so say, some people would lose it sometimes, wouldn't they? Oh, a lot of people do, myself included, over the years. And, and, and I've now, I've, I've led ceremonies over the years, too. And I've been there for people because I know what they're going through. And, and you can, you can, like, you can re- re-experience your birth trauma and relive it. Wow. And, you know, one of the phenomena among all the other things that happen with, um, with ayahuasca is that you'll tap into this experience which is sort of coded into your brain and your memory, like emotionally, and you will actually relive it. Are all these indigenous tribes down there all on ayahuasca? Not all of them. Uh, there are different plants in different ways and different things. And, and as I mentioned, ayahuasca is considered the mother of all the plants. But the area where I go is where some of the first uh, Western connections were made with people. Uh, it's it's getting now a bit out of control, in in my opinion, in this day and age. And um, one of the reasons, and I, and I appreciate you having me on the show to talk about this, is that for me, I want people's eyes to be wide open. Yes. Because it it can be dangerous. It's not it's not a party thing. It's a very serious uh, spiritual psychological uh, growth process where you learn to navigate uh, intense altered states. And then you can be in your normal everyday life and you can get into a situation that can be very surreal or bizarre or hard to deal with, you know, including death and all those things. And you're like, okay, I've been here. I can handle this because you've already sort of had the basic, you know, the basic training, the dress rehearsal for it, so to speak. You, you've gone through it in those experiences yeah. that are deeply connected to the, to the roots of your, your brain and your physiology. And it actually, uh, it's, a, it's a fact that it actually rewires your brain. That's amazing, the power of this. Is it like LSD? It's like LSD. I like to think that LSD is is, is, is basic training and mushrooms. Um, I was first exposed to LSD back in like 71 when I was in, you know, growing up in Boston in Dorchester there. Sure. And it, it blew my mind. And uh, and I was, you know, 16, 17. Right? I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Oh, my God. You were on it early, huh? Oh, I, I, was, I was sniffing glue before that. When I was three or four, I got dizzy as much as I could, and then I was hyperventilating. And, you know, growing up in the inner city. <laughs> Matthew, well, you're lucky it didn't kill you. Um, I had close calls, for sure. Really? Um, yeah. But, but the thing, the, this path of shamanism is considered the power path, and it's about expanding your awareness. So when you get caught up and you re-experience these emotions in an ayahuasca journey, you're experiencing them with what I like to call witness consciousness or the Buddhists would call mindfulness. So when you have have the initial experience and it's unprecedented, your mind can go a million places and it can suppress it and stuff it and this and that. But when you re-experience it at another point where you have some objectivity to it and you, you get to see it in what I like to call this witness consciousness or I like to say mommy's home or daddy's home and you get to see it with that distance. And understand that you may even be acting out this trauma is a misconception, and you can relive it and re-experience it with that awareness and then resolve it. Is ayahuasca considered legal in the United States or not? It's a very uh, yes and no. So my good friend, uh, Dr. Charles Grobe, he's the director of psychology, uh, child psychology and psychiatry at UCLA Harbor Medical Center. He was the first witness, legal witness, for one of the first cases. And I, I may get one of the facts not quite correct, but you get the sense of it here. There are there are more now, but at the time there were three primary churches that came out of ayahuasca that were sanctioned by governments. There was the UDV, which is Unado de Vegetales. There was Barquinha, which is I think an offshoot of UDV, and there was the Santo Daime, which most people know about. So this UDV sect in New Mexico were importing the ayahuasca for their ceremonies, and the DEA intercepted it and busted them. Well, the guy who was leading the church, and I get them mixed up, was one of the Bronfmans. There's Edgar Bronfman. There's the Seagram Seven Fortune. They, oh, yeah, yeah. Rich family. Yeah, one of them. 
Yeah. He fought it, and he beat him. So the DEA uh, appealed it, went back to court again, and they beat him again. And then it went to the Supreme Court. They probably didn't have it on that list. Um, well, it, yeah. Well, it, it, so it, when I went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, eight, eight unanimous, eight nothing, in favor of religious freedom. And then they dismantled the case for the DEA and said, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, you're wrong here. And, wow. and my friend Charlie was uh, the chief medical witness for that because he had done some studies on that. So since then, there have been more and more and more. And, of course, when that was going on, they were sort of asking for support from the Native American church, which has the religious use of peyote, and they didn't kind of didn't want to get involved with it. So some people are doing it now more out in the open, which I don't think is good. Some people are saying it's my religious freedom. There are more attorneys now. It's kind of a burgeoning thing, and it's a double-edged sword. Um, you know, too much out of control in the wrong hands. Um it can can really be troublesome. It really needs to have the ultimate respect, and it needs to be approached you know, properly with, with caution, and it is not for everybody. Matthew, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit more about your in- interest in werewolves, and then we'll take phone calls on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back. Matthew Palomari with us as we talk about his work on shamanism. Matthew, I've got to ask about lycanthropy and werewolves. How did you get involved in this? Yeah, that's been one of, one of my passions. Um, so I was studying the werewolf uh, lycanthropy mythology, and um, I actually wrote my third novel. It's called Eye of the Predator, and it's about a guy who can go into the consciousness of all these different animals, uh-huh. which you know, and it, cause I've always been fascinated with perception. I've written books on perception and cognition, um, which is, you know, part of the whole shamanic journey. Now, I, God, when I was a kid and watched Lon Chaney Jr. and The Werewolf, I was just rooted. You know? <laughs> Me too. Yeah, fascinated, you know. And so then, you know, you look at that and then you, you, you grow for me as a writer and studying mythologies and, and all of those things. And you realize that, that, that the, the werewolf mythology has to do sort of in being in touch with our inner beast. And just like uh, Jekyll, and, Jekyll and Hyde was about the shadow and, uh, you know, the shadow of the dark side. And um, every great story follows the hero's journey. And in the hero's journey, the antagonist is actually the shadow of the hero. So it's about going down and acknowledging our bestiality. And no matter what we say or not, I always like to make the joke that I spent my entire life trying to get in touch with my inner dog. Because that's a part of ourselves that we can, we can, we we all have those animal instincts. We're all mammals, and a lot of us in in polite society try to deny that. So when it comes up in the in the form of of the werewolf um, in mythology and as an archetype, we're, we're all fascinated with that because it's something that, regardless of what anybody thinks, it's sort of a universal thing that we all have and we can all relate to. One of the things that fascinated me with that and earlier in my career when I was doing more horror and serial killers and all those things, the horrendous, horrific things, is that if somebody's human and they can do those things, then absolutely every one of us is capable of that. You know, That's we, are, true. We, we are the monster and the monster is us kind of a thing. And that fascinated me. So all of the werewolf stuff that I, that I read and followed through on and all the, the wonderful classic uh, tales of it, um, has, has always grasped my imagination. And of course, uh, the whole lycanthropy thing leads into shape-shifting and the, 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 the quote-unquote uh, ability to turn into animals or whatever that would be. That always really had my attention. So when I started exploring the lycanthropy, it brought me into the greater shape-shifting mythologies. Did you ever come across anything, Matthew, that would convince you this is real stuff? Well, yes, yes and no. There's two ways of looking at that. So I always like to say that everything I have to say is in is what is in my universe and people can take it or leave it it's my thing and it all comes down to radical subjectivity so in my i've had experiences of animals my book is titled picaflor because i have a very deep connection with hummingbird picaflor hmm. in spanish peruvian spanish picaros to bite or sting in flora's flower and that is my totem animal and i've connected with that animal in ayahuasca visions and journeys. And the way it works in essence in shamanism like this is that you 
you take the ayahuasca and it's just like right now all the listeners are tuning into their radio stations and they're all hearing the same thing because they're tuned into that specific frequency. Sure. So ayahuasca puts you into a frequency where the animal spirits and the plant spirits are kind of all there among all these other things and you share the energy. So when the hummingbird comes to me in my visions, my body moves, my, my legs flap like wings, my visions become like high frequency neon, neon pastel beautiful indescribable things and in the lore of the jungle not only am i seeing through the hummingbird's eyes but it's seeing through mine and we're sharing and learning from each other so we're sharing that vibration and if we're sharing that vibration we're sharing that energy and as i mentioned in shamanism everything is energy and you can actually say the word spirit and the word energy are the same thing so when you're in those states and you're experiencing that directly like that for you in that moment it's real just like i mentioned a while ago you can be in a dream flying a purple horse with pink polka dots and when you're in that dream in that particular state of consciousness it's real it's real to you and you don't even question it that's right let's take yeah, some so calls here for they're lining yeah, up sir. joe yeah. in monterey california welcome to the program hey joseph go ahead thank you george sure um um, I do um, hypnotherapy, uh, a very advanced form of hypnotherapy, and my clients uh, work in their higher state and sometimes in their superconscious state, the superconscious mind. And in those states, we journey uh, to go wherever we need to go for healing. Usually it's a uh, past life where we heal the individual and the people involved. Um, in that state, a great many uh, things can happen. Uh, some people communicate with, uh, with plant life um, in altered states. Plant life, uh, they communicate with rock, stones, uh, gemstones. These things have a kind of a consciousness. So the shamans, and I don't like to use that word because they're really holy men and mystics, um, they do communicate with that and they get information whether it's good or bad if they're really good at what they do. And journeying is probably one of our most powerful, as a human being, one of our most powerful tools to master our life. Um, thank you for being on the show. It's, uh, it's incredible to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. What do you think of that, Matthew? Well, thank you, John. Bless you for your kind words. I'm so happy I can be of service. Um, I, I want to say that um, those states, uh, what you're discussing, what you're talking about there and the phenomenon that you've been helping to, to happen is what shamanism, they would call soul travel uh, or soul retrieval, actually, is more, more of a proper term. And so, you know, we have, when we, when we come into the world, we emulate those around us and we pick up habits. That's how we learn. We emulate our parents, our brothers, our sisters. Well, there's strategies for coping in the world, but they're not always necessarily the right way to do it. But that's all we have at our disposal at the time, and we do that. We do that when we get traumatized in extreme cases. And, of course, oftentimes the trauma is so bad that we, we sort of go into shock and we block it, and it's a block. And when you do this work through shamanism or visionary states or dreaming or hypnotherapy in those states, you access those. I like to think of them as forgotten aspects of who we are. Uh, you know, I always like to, I always joke around and say, I'm a cast of thousands. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm angry, I'm hungry, I'm horny, I'm happy, whatever I am, anybody. They, they're all of these sub-personalities and they'll be stuck with these traumas that are buried, particularly in really bad ones like, like rapes and PTSD and those things where they're, they're totally buried and forgotten because it's a survival mechanism for, the, for, the, for the, uh, the psyche to disconnect from the body because it's so horrendous. So if you get to a point of awareness where you're guided, whether through a visionary state or hypnotherapy, you go back to those lost aspects of who you are. And you find them and you retrieve them and bring them back. And in shamanism and in Jungian psychology, it's called individuation. And in shamanism, what my old shaman teacher would say is all those different parts are, are energy leaks. So when you're on the power path, the idea is to go and find all the hidden, lost and, and abandoned and fearful aspects of who you are and retrieving them and bringing them back home. And the more you do that, the more you, are, uh, you come into the moment and you're more aware and you're more present. So you're not, if you see a guy walking down a street who looks threatening, you're not freaking out like, oh, a guy like that mugged me five years ago, or maybe he's going to mug me when I walk down the street. You're not present in the moment. You're either thinking about the past, you're reacting from the past, or you're thinking about in the future. It hasn't even occurred yet. And when you bring all these different aspects to yourself back to this wholeness, you're more aware and you're fully present in the moment because in the end, even though it's a cliche, the moment is all we really, really have. Let's go to Woodland Hills, California. Shani's with us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, Shani. 
Hi, guys. Hey, I love everything you're talking about. Um, seriously, you're such an urban shaman, and I'm grateful that you're out there doing what you're doing. I wanted to expand on something that I'm really interested in because I, too, do a lot of that uh, that particular psychoactive substance that you're speaking of. Ayahuasca. And I've encountered some really amazing beings in my journeys. Um, first, it was like weird, like little like circus people, you know, and I've seen, I know other people too because I've seen it in the DMT art, like same kind of like weird little beings, but... But now, after years of working with it, like, now I see, like, light and and have, like, contact with, like, higher dimensional beings. And anyway, I hadn't, you hadn't really um, mentioned that. So I was wondering if you could touch upon some of the beings that maybe you've met in your experience. What do you think about that, sure. Matthew? Go ahead. Yeah, good question. It's almost, I hate to say this, it's almost like McDonald's, billions and billions served. I've had so many experiences and things now. But there's a, a concept in shamanism and in the lore of the jungle, it's called whistling through the forest. And when you go into the jungle, you're basically, when we do ayahuasca ceremony, we're singing to the plants. There's even a book, I can't forget his name now, he's a colleague, but he wrote a book called Singing to the Plants. And you're singing to the plants, and you go into the jungle and you say, look, I'm telling you right now, I know I'm in your neighborhood, and I know that you have the power to heal me, and you have the power to kill me or make me very sick, and I'm here honoring you and singing to you and saying, you know, I, I recognize your power and I'm consciously opening myself up to you to have uh, some contact and interaction with me. Now, the first thing you do when you're doing an ayahuasca ceremony is you do protection and you create a container, an energetic container where people can be vulnerable to go through if, if, if they have PTSD or some, you know, horrible childhood abuse. They can go through it in a safe place. So you go through this safe place and you open yourself up to these influences in a safe manner with somebody who has integrity, who knows what they're doing. And you can get contacted with plants and animals and weird. I, I can't tell you some of the things. Well, I can't tell you some of the things I wrote in my book. So let's want to know really more about this. I get into detail. That was Stephen but, Beyer, by the way, who wrote that book. Stephen, thank you so much. Stephen mm -hmm. Beyer, yes. Yeah. Thank you for I, – I, I hate when I forget names. You are correct. Thank you. Next up, let's go to Barbara in Florida. Take it away, Barb. Go ahead. Sure. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, and welcome. I appreciate hearing. Can you hear me? Sure can. I yep. appreciate hearing from your guests, especially on being in the moment. It is so important with all the psych stuff going on that we stay in the moment. And if you can watch a hummingbird, watch a hawk, um, watch a raccoon, and just relate to being with them. It's very important. I was going to describe my last holiday. I went to uh, Dances with Wolves was the big thing. And I went to the Rosebud Reservation, stayed at a and b and had uh, Dawson Has No Horse as my guide. His mom and dad were both holy people. Um, Tommy asked me, was he holy? Well, Dawson took me to the grave of a chief, and I noticed there were cigarettes all over, and I thought it was like litter. And then I realized he explained they were tobacco offerings for prayer. Hmm. And he took a cigarette and he bent and broke it and put it in the fence and there was a thunderclap. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, does that happen often? And he said, every time I do it. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, we were discussing the Lakota medicine wheel, which is um, yellow, uh, red, black, and white. Or white, yes. black. Anyway, so I, it came to me. I said, well, when you light a match, it start, strike a fire, it starts out yellow when it's young. And then as it ages, it gets hot and it's red. And then when it's getting older, it goes black to charcoal. And then when that's all gone, it goes gray to heaven. And he says, yeah, can I use that? <laughs> Perfect. And then he gave me a Lakota name. She who knows without seeing. And he invited me back to a Sundance to be a prayer supporter. I never made it back. I found out they ate dog soup. But um, anyway, and the other thing I just wanted to mention, I asked him how could rocks be animate because I couldn't understand that. I had read a little bit about black elk. And he said, think about it. They're age old. They have seen much. They have the wisdom of the centuries. And later I was in Wyoming walking down a trail. It wasn't park or anything. And I had this rock say, pick me up and take me home. I don't want to be in the snow anymore. Uh, well, have you seen some of those pictures of rocks that have moved in sand, Matthew? Yeah. It's weird. I mean, it's like they did walking for 15 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in the shamanic viewpoint, um, everything is, is consciousness. Everything is awareness. And all of the perceptual things that come to us through our five senses and in other places, it's in our mind where we put them together. 
um, that we make sense out of them. My, my two books ago, I wrote a book, longest book title ever, probably. The center of the universe is right between your eyes, but home is where the heart is. Because you make the decisions of what is real for you, how you deal with your perceptions. And, you know, shamanism is a series of really stretching your perceptions every which way you can um, in order to expand more in your awareness. Um, and I want to address really quick, too, and, and stop me if I go on too long, but um, I've, I've been trained in tobacco, and I've worked with tobacco a lot in shamanism. And um, in the jungle, they call the cigarettes mapachos, and it's nicotina rustica, and it's five to seven times the strength of what they have up here. And when you use it ceremonially as a connection to spirit, you're, you don't inhale it. And as a matter of fact, you take the smoke in, and then your smoke going out and dissipating into the air, that is a way, a, a mode of prayer and protection. So it's used in that way. The other part of this tying with the animals, and particularly uh, the hummingbirds, but uh, the animals in general, is that all of these things are called elemental spirits. And of course, the primary elemental spirits are earth, air, fire, and water. And if you're in Chinese medicine, they add the fifth, they, they say metal is one of them. And elemental spirits, when you start to recognize them, I always like to say you knock on spirit's door and then one day spirit knocks back and scares the heck out of you. Like like it could be something like a walk and, hey, pick me up. Or, you know, I've had some very amazing, fantastic, unbelievable experiences with animals, you know, in, in regular everyday consensual waking reality, not even in my visions, you know. But once you, they see that you notice them, they recognize it, and then they start to show up in different ways, like uh, that shaman, the, the medicine man that did with the tobacco at the grave where they was making an offering. And, you know, spirit basically, he said, every, and he, no big deal. The thunder, every time I do that, the thunder goes. He's like, no big deal. It's, that's part of his reality, and that's, you know, spirit knocking back, and that's proof of how very much connected he is. And it's so. amazing, Matthew, how much these shamanic types of folks know without the high technology we have today. Amen, brother. You know, one of the things I sort of rail against a little bit is that we are really increasingly more and more disconnected from the natural world by technology. And, you know, originally everything, the knowledge was all passed down through oral traditions. And then once somebody wrote that down, it sort of got frozen in time with those writings, beginning with, you know, the Greeks and, and you know, prehistory like that or, or ancient history, so to speak. So then it gets put into words and then somebody copied that. And then, you know, as we moved along, then we have the, the Gutenberg press. And so suddenly we're getting bunches of copies of everything all over the place. Those thoughts are frozen in time in that way. And then, of course, we go on to the Internet and electronic publishing. And I, I call the Internet the narcissistic hall of mirrors. You might be right about that. Matthew, we're going to take a quick break and come back and wrap things up with final calls with you next on Coast to Coast AM. And we are back with our final segment with Matthew Palomari. His website is his name, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. In your latest book, Matthew, where do people get it? They can either get it from Amazon um, right now as an e-book and as, like I say, a tree book. And also from Mystic Inc. Publishing, it's M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com, MysticIncPublishing.com. Super. Let's go to Alberta, Canada. Arlene's with us. Welcome to the program. Hi, Arlene. Hello. Hi, Matthew. Um, my question is, are you aware of the book, The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaki Way of Knowledge by Carlos Castaneda? And I want to know if that is actually just fiction or it's real account of uh, his life story. That's Great. A good Hi, Arlene. Thank you. Great question. Um, I read those books probably four or five times over and over again. And um, I was lucky enough, my anthropology professor uh, in San Diego, I took an honors course in, honors course in anthropology. It was called uh, um, Orientation and Meaning of South American Indian Religions, A Forest of Symbols. And my professor actually went to school with uh, Carlos. And what he told me is that actually Don Juan was a combination of a number of shamans and people that uh, that Carlos, uh, Carlos came across. With. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's been lots of controversy. So I've also read all the uh, critical, not all of them, but I've read a number of critical works of Castaneda's work too. But I think it was very groundbreaking. And um, I think that he was maybe an amalgam. You know, the Don Juan character was an amalgam of all those different things. But, um, you know, regardless of the source of things, even in stories, there can be truth in some things that are in there. So even though much of it may have very well been made up, 
there's still a lot of valuable things in there. And I really love those stories. And you got to admit, he was a good storyteller. He, he certainly hooked me for a long time. Indeed. Shane's with us in Florida. It's your turn, Shane. Take it away. Yes. Hello. Uh, great segment, George. Thanks for taking the call. Thank you, Shane. Uh, Matthew, I just had a question about uh, the shadows you spoke of, the shadows of ourselves, when we fragment ourselves to deal with certain things that we've gone through in our past. Is, is the goal to shed those shadows or to reabsorb them with the understanding? Great question. The goal is to reabsorb them with the understanding. And the shadows are repressed aspects of who we are. So the, the example I like to give is, let's say you're three years old and you got a box of crayons and you're suddenly inspired and you cover the whole wall. And, you know, your mom walks out and sees the whole wall covered in crayons and, oh, you're bad, and you get spanked and put to your room. Well, you, you could conceivably have a, an aversion to art, and your whole artistic thing could be stifled because of that. Because you're, even though it was an honest expression of what you felt at the moment, it was not uh, proper, and it was considered to be bad in terms of the context of where you were socially. So there are things inside of us, even our inner werewolves and our inner dogs that aren't, aren't acceptable, and we're forced to repress them. And any trauma that we have, PTSD is something that, you know, as an example, gets repressed, and then something will bring it out and make it happen. And then you relive it and you're re-experiencing it. So there's all this sort of new age woo-woo stuff about killing your ego and all that, and I, that's not right. What, what my coach told me, which I really love, is um, you want to give all those sub-personalities, give them a new job because we created them. And they're out there trying to protect us. There are, there are protective coping strategies that we developed. So once we realize that, that many of them may be misguided, particularly in terms of the shadow, and we bring them back into ourselves, then all the psychological, psychic energy that we're using to repress that becomes available to us. In my own case, uh, and I meant to refer to this earlier, I didn't, I didn't finish the thought, but um, in my case, my feminine was repressed. And when I rediscovered that part of me that I had totally denied and repressed, my intuition shot through the ceiling. And I started having telepathic experiences and other things that I didn't even think were conceivable because I had repressed those parts of myself. So it's about bringing it all together. It's what Jung called individuation. And um, it's about becoming more whole and more complete. And wonderful things about it is, is you never arrive. It's infinite. Every time you get to a new level, there's all new things and new problems that are opened up to you. So it's all about bringing it all home and owning all the parts of yourself to be more complete, whole, and more aware and in the moment. Let's go to Barry in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Hello there, stranger. Welcome. Shoot, I'm no stranger, George. <laughs> I know that. I'm no stranger, but I'm strange. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about legal marijuana, the, the, the chemical in the plant that uh, he hasn't even talked about tonight. I'm real surprised. But, George, I was hooked, you might remember, on oxycodone, pain that, reliever. That's horrible stuff. I got off. My doctor said, all right, I'm going to prescribe you medical marijuana. It comes in pill form. And... uh. Uh, it's not legal here in South Carolina, but it is in Washington, D.C. and Florida, so I get it from Florida and D.C. Anyway, uh, I, I love it because it makes me happy, hungry, and high. <laughs> Which is all three right now. As a matter of fact, I had a pill about four hours ago. <laughs> Anyway, um, the, 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 I'm a biochemist, as you probably well remember, and yep. I studied when I was going to Bolivia, South America, uh, the, the uh, marijuana plant and the chemical in it, tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, and uh, the psychological effects and psychotropic effects. And it, it works, uh, George. It's, uh, I can wake up in pain. I have chronic back pain for a fall I had years ago. And uh, anyway, I just wondered what you guests thought about the marijuana plant and the effects of it. And is it a good thing or bad? See you. All right, Matt. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'll admit I've had a lifelong love affair with it. Um, I've indulged in it for over 50 years, but I also take long breaks from it from time to time. Wow. And I think in, in this present day and age, with all the hybridization and all the plants that even though they may be grown pure and organically, they are a lot more powerful than they used to be. I think it was something like it, it was doubling in potency like every five years or something like that. 
So I think there, I think it has a lot of great beneficial uses which are coming out now. Uh, it helps me with my writing, um, and I have this whole thing with uh, caffeine and uh, cannabis that helps with my writing. But I also take breaks from it, and uh, incidentally, when I'm doing an ayahuasca dieta or any of that nature, I stop everything else because it doesn't. Uh, you shouldn't do. You want to be as clear and as pure as you can be going into those experiences. But it has a lot of good use, and, and um, particularly with people who have had pain or trauma or stress, it's a very effective thing. But it, it, like anything else, it, it, it has potential for, for some abuse. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. You know, I'm in California here. My, my, my nephews grow for the dispensaries. I've been right on the edge of the whole legalization thing for a long time. So I'm very much aware of that and, you know, many people. And if it's working for you and it's a plant, why not, right? Okay, let's go to Mitch in New York. First-time caller. Mitch, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, George, and uh, thanks for taking the call, and uh, Matthew. And um, one, one, I know you've been talking about different plants and foods and things like that. One story I've uh, found very interesting is how coffee came about, and this, the tale is the tale of the dancing goats. And it says that over and around Saudi Arabia years ago, when guys were out herding goats, they noticed they would go over to a, a bush and eat coffee beans and get really active, in fact, dance on their hind legs. Huh. So they went over and tried them. And of course, coffee beans are very bitter if you just eat them. So somebody got the idea of, I don't know how, of grinding them up and making coffee. So anybody wants to Google dancing goats or story of dancing goats will hear the story. In fact, they even name the person that they believe uh, ground them up and made coffee. What do you think of that, Matthew? What a story. It is a great story. It's funny that uh, that you brought that up because I actually just read that about in the last year or so about that. And there is truth to that. And it follows what I was saying that throughout history, we have, uh, as you know, humanity, we have observed what animals do and how the plants affect them. And that has been a guide for us to what can be useful and what isn't. Um, so I, th- that is a that is a very real uh, story in, in all of its permutations. And, um, you know, do, if anybody wants to dig into that and do the research, it's there. Caffeine uh, coffee is one of the most powerful plants that we have in terms of our society and in terms of its effect and all the history of it. Is, is ayahuasca dangerous in the wrong hands, Matthew? Yes. Ah. Yes. Anybody who does any work with it, first off, should be psychologically screened. Anybody who could have some buried um, issues for arguments like, like, like schizophrenia typically happens when you're around 19 if it's going to hit you, typically. If you have that service in ayahuasca, it can bring it on. It can make it far, far worse. So people really need to be psychologically screened. They need to have uh, a particular way. The, the, the neurochemistry is important, and there's a, there's a saying in all of psychedelics called set and setting, which is where you are and who you're with. It's really not something to be messed with. If, if you do ayahuasca and you're using, like, antidepressants, um, the SSRI inhibitors and all that can send you into convulsions, and you can die. Wow. Um, be so it's not, it's not it's something to be played with. It's not a party drug. It's rec- rec- recreational drug or any of that. It's for uh, it's serious inner search, you know, for, for trying to figure out who and what we are and to heal ourselves. So that's a very good question, George. It's not, you know, not a, not a easy thing. And um, the, the most intense work I've done with the plant diets in the jungle for all these years, are, they're ordeals. They're not fun. Um, but the results are, you know, very powerful, so not to be trifled with. Spirit Matters, one of your other books. Tell us briefly about that. Yeah, Spirit Matters is actually the, it's a memoir, and Pico Flora, which I just finished, is a sequel. So Spirit Matters ended 20 years ago, and I went into the jungle. It's my life leading up to my first experience in the jungle where I had the most profound experience of my entire life. And without getting into the details too much, because I know we don't have a lot of time here, I ended up in a dream that was more lucid than any dream that I've ever had. And I was, the dream, the lucid dream was more real than real. And I was fully aware of myself asleep in the jungle and in the dream at the same time. And the dream was more real than the jungle. And I had the most profound, validated, life-exchanging experience that you can even begin to imagine in unexpected ways. Uh, so it ends with that, and it ends with my growing up in a tough neighborhood, and my friends were car thieves, and my father went to prison, and all the violence and stuff, and how I went through different points of my life where I made changes that were brought to me by the different plants at different times that shifted my thinking and helped me to grow out of all the violence and stuff that I was caught up with to... Uh, 
hopefully the peaceful zen-like person I am now. Let's go to Vancouver, Canada. Craig's with us. Hey, Craig, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Oh, sure. Thanks, George. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. And thanks to Premier Networks. And also, if I could give a little shout-out to WGNS Radio out of Tennessee from the Smoky West Coast here. Um, Matthew, do you have any experience? You, you touched on peyote, but do you have any experience with it? Just a three-part question here. Um, and it was it used for medicine or spiritual work? And uh, Don Juan used it, apparently. Um, you said some people didn't like it. And why was that? Or some people didn't use it. Why was that? And finally, uh, what's the difference between uh, ayahuasca and peyote? They're both hallucinogenic. Good, good question. Okay, go ahead, Matthew. Yeah. In the last okay, few so, minutes we got. Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to do the whole traditional Huichola, um peyote pilgrimage and hunt. I spent the night in Wiracuta. I did the peyote hunt. I did the all-night ceremony. I went to Mount Quemado and did the pilgrimage there. I was I was worked in the tradition of people who were trained by that. Now, chemically speaking, um, ayahuasca uh, is considered a tryptamine. The DMT is dimethyltryptamine, and there's a little bit of 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine, but it's mostly the, the tryptamines that are that visual aspect, whereas peyote and also San Pedro cactus, which is up in the Andes with mescaline, those are called phenethylamine. So there are two different actions on the brain, and then the combination of plants and even the combination of, of peyote. So you can the active uh, psychoactive component in peyote is mescaline, but there are other alkaloids that can affect the experience in what they call the entourage effect. And the analogy I like to use, it's like I can make a soup or a stew or a chicken, but what spices do I use on the chicken and how do I flavor it to, to alter it a little bit and shift the experience of it? So they affect the mind in different ways and they're tradi different traditions, but at the core of those traditions are the basic shamanic beliefs that are universal. So like peyote, um, it's considered a, a nighttime medicine. Ayahuasca is considered a nighttime medicine, but the San Pedro cactus in the Andes is considered a daytime medicine. Matthew, thank so, you for being on the program. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck with everything you do and keep in touch with us, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show and thank everybody for listening and calling in and for your wonderful crew. I really appreciate it. You got it. Fascinating discussion, to be sure. We've got lots going on for you for the rest of the week here on Coast to Coast AM, so just keep your radio dial right where it is. For Michael Cosio, Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Alex Lonehood, Sean Vadasor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tibbanal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett, I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.